0: Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome back to another episode of Actively Speaking, and I'm joined once again by Kevin Hebner, who was with us last time to talk about central bank digital currencies. And uh, we're, we're still talking about money today, but in a different aspect of money, we're going to talk about inflation and it's been on a lot of people's minds lately with good reason, a lot of government spending going on, and people worrying justifiably about what the implications are going to be for inflation. So welcome back, Kevin. Well, thank you, Steve. You and Bill Priest have written a white paper about what's going on with inflation, and the paper will be available on our website. I want to start by stepping back a bit, and we'll get to later, I'm talking about More specifics about where inflation is today and where it might be going in the near term. But I want to talk a bit about conceptually about how we think about inflation and particularly what drives inflation. Because, you know, my observation has been in, you know, being an adult for about 40 years now that people's thinking about inflation has changed. And Kevin and I are about the same age when we were younger. There was still some vestiges of a belief that you know, inflation was this purely monetary phenomenon and Milton Friedman, you know, became kind of a rock star, the unlikeliest rock star of all time. And and he was a strict monetarist who believed that inflation was entirely a monetary phenomenon of just completely controlled by monetary policy. So Kevin, talk a bit about how the thinking about inflation has evolved since that time.
1: Well, there was a brief period with, as you're Milton Friedman, particularly in the 50s when he published his Monetary History, which focused on the role of money supply, in particular contractions in money supply as the catalyst for recessions through the history of the United States up until that point. And so with that, monetarism had a very brief period where that was a key way to think about the economy growth, including inflation. But that was quite brief. Milton Friedman received his Nobel Prize in 76. And it was really shortly after that that monetarism, uh, I think, was displaced, largely because the velocity of money with a host of innovations changed so dramatically that you really couldn't be thinking about leaning on the money supply in his K-percent rule and, and using that in any way as a tool or even a policy tool to understand the economy or, or to drive the economy.
0: So for listeners who may not know that term, tell us what the velocity of money is.
1: So velocity refers to the, the rate that money circulates in the economy. And and clearly, when you have innovations, at that time, the big innovation was credit cards, ATMs were coming out, and, and clearly now, as we were discussing in the last podcast, with so many different forms of private digital money, it's difficult to imagine the government has really any control over the velocity of money. So whatever they do on the M side, if MD equals PT, thinking that somehow they can change M, V will be a cause to enhance PT, nominal GDP will respond accordingly. Certainly no one thinks that relationship is robust anymore. And I think that's been true since the early 80s that people did not think that there was a sufficiently robust relationship through the money equation.
0: Right. I mean, it's almost as if people once thought that velocity was like a, a constant of nature, you know, as opposed to really kind of a plug figure almost.
1: Yes, yeah. And and I think you, you could have made that argument in an economy where there weren't credit cards, you know, there wasn't PayPal or Alipay or all sorts of different ways to pay. But that, that certainly... Is really in the '60s when that process started to change. So I think it's been a long time since monetarism was viewed as sort of a a robust way to think about the economy. And certainly that hasn't been the case, at least in the last 50 years.
0: Right. So it it seems to me that the the thing that kind of took over was the so-called Phillips curve, the idea that there was this inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. That as unemployment goes down and and Companies have to, in essence, bid for workers in in a shrinking pool of workers as the unemployment rate falls, that that ends up pushing up wages and that contributes to inflation. And for a time that was viewed as a pretty solid, you know, relationship. But it seems like that has, that too, that relationship too has, has not been stable over time. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah. And it happens with so many things. So. Milton Friedman published his important work in the 50s, and it briefly became very popular. But then immediately, you headed into the great inflation from 65 until 82, and the whole thing fell apart. Similar with the Phillips curve, Bill Phillips did his work in the late 50s. Briefly, Keynesians pushed very hard on the notion of, particularly, a stable short-term Phillips curve. But... Certainly by the early mid seventies, there were big concerns about that. And by the early eighties, the notion of sort of naive, what's called short term stable Phillips curve, I think very few people believed it by the end of the great inflation.
0: So where do we stand today? I mean, what would you describe the current thinking in the economics profession on the drivers, you know, what drives inflation?
1: Yeah. So the workhorse now is what's called an expectations-augmented Phillips curve. So you have the basic Phillips curve, which, as you mentioned, describes the relationship between inflation and unemployment, for example. And then the big change was adding inflation expectations because we really had a change in inflation expectations, sort of a regime change from the mid-late 60s as inflation expectations became unanchored prior to 65, Inflation had been well below 2% for at least 15 years, but then for a host of reasons, which we detail in the paper, that became unanchored. Part of it was LBJ's foreign poverty programs, spending associated with Vietnam, and then the oil price shocks. But inflation expectations became unanchored, and we had inflation move well into double-digit territories, in fact, almost hitting 20%. And then we had inflation expectations rocketing back down. But for that to happen, we had the two Volcker policy-induced recessions in the early 80s. So there's this realization that inflation expectations is a crucial component of this part. But now, even 40 years after this, our understanding of inflation expectations and the process that creates that uh, in the minds of consumers and businesses is still not very well understood at all.
0: That's interesting. It seems like many other areas of economics which have been not taken over, but there's been this growing influence of, you know, quote, behavioral economics. It seems like that has spread to thinking about inflation as well.
1: Yes. And with behavioral economics, sometimes there's natural experiments or different types of economic experiments they can run. This is a bit more challenge because you we have a macro factor. And so what some people do, for example, is look at when there are inflation shocks that hit one region and not another region and then see how expectations of people in one place change relative to another. But it is very difficult for behavioral economists to get any rigor and understanding of how this process works.
0: Well, and that leads me to, you know, another point, which is not only is it hard for economists, but uh it raises the question of how much control can a central bank have over this process if in fact you know a key part of the process is consumer expectations and we don't really understand how those are formed you know how much control do you think central banks can have over inflation
1: well overall i would say not an enormous amount, and certainly less than you would think by listening to central bankers and how they talk in, in some of their speeches, you just have to wonder to the extent that they understand the climate regarding the drivers of inflation at all. You know there are models, for example, the expectations of augmented phillips curve, but then over the last twenty years, we've had huge deflationary drivers, for example, imports from china, the effect of tech and We think, in particular, the effect of tech, it's led to inflation probably being overstated by 100 basis points. And and this is something that central bankers don't really have any control at all. The imports we have from China are technological innovation in the economy. So I think in terms of the actual ability of central bankers to control it, and in the paper, we, we show a simple model from moving the Fed funds rate to what it means for consumption, to the output gap, to wage growth inflation there's a lot of slippage in these linkages. And sometimes central bankers talk as if this relationship is, is much more mechanical, that you can engineer it, that you can fine-tune it, that I think is supported by the evidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. There was a piece recently by Stephen Roach. People may remember that name. He was for years at Morgan Stanley. Now he teaches at Yale. And he still writes about economics and posts things online. And he worked early in his career at the Fed under Arthur Burns, who was Fed chairman under uh, Nixon. And that, of course, was when inflation was starting to get a little bit out of control in the early 70s. And of course, we had uh, wage and price controls in 1971 and so forth. But Roach tells this story about how Arthur Burns kept asking the staff to take various items out of the CPI calculation. I mean this is sort of where we came up with the core CPI concept that which traditionally just takes out food and energy. And the idea behind it was that Burns's rationale was, well, you know, for example, if there was bad weather and that was driving up food prices because of crop shortages or something, his feeling was, well, there's nothing we can do about that at the Fed. Monetary policy is not going to matter to that. So let's see what the, quote, core inflation that's driven by things that we can control at the Fed. Uh, How how is that behaving? But that eventually, as Roach tells the story, they were taking out, you know, about two-thirds of the basket, of the CPI basket. And it kind of raises the point of, well, at that point, what does it really matter? Because the, you may say that, well, we can't control, you know, energy prices or food prices, but the consumer still has to pay them. You know, I mean, if they're going up, you know, five or 10%, you know, the consumers are not going to be mollified by saying, well, you know, that's, that's not part of the core inflation. They're still seeing that money go out the door as they're paying more for, you know, for gas or for steak or whatever. So yeah, it, I find it a fascinating question of, you know how much do we know about this, and how much can we actually control it? So not to go to Russ Roberts on on us here, but for people who may not know, he's the host of a podcast called Econ Talk, which I would recommend if you've never listened to it. He's an economist, but a, a very big believer that economists need to be quite humble about how much we can know and how much policies can actually affect things but let's let's move on and let's given all that that humility that we start this with. Tell us where we are today. People are worried about inflation picking up and certainly most recent CPI numbers the last month or two have been higher. You know, the rate of inflation has risen. What's driving that in the short term? And in the paper, you talk about a couple of possible analogies in terms of different periods in the past that you think the current situation might be analogous to. So take us through that.
1: Okay, well, that was a lot in terms of the questions. (laughs) Maybe maybe I'll I'll, I'll just go with the the latter part of your question in terms of the historical sort of qualitative analogy that we could use. And the one that has been getting a lot of attention recently is the so-called great inflation, the period from 1965 until 1982. And in the paper, we spent some time detailing how inflation broke out during that time period. And there were five key features that led to that. One is complacency. In particular, up to 1965, we had a very long time period in which inflation was benign. And really, from 1953 to 1965, it averaged 1.5%. And that's similar to where we are now, where we've had inflation being quite benign, say, for the last three decades. The second feature of the great inflation was accelerated government spending, and particular from 1964 with OBJ's war on poverty and then the escalation of the Vietnamese war that occurred. And, and clearly there's an analogy to that now with increase in spending, both under Trump and now under President Biden. At that time, there was the Fed prioritized employment over inflation. The Fed in the 60s did that at least until 1979 when... Volcker took over. But as you're mentioning, Burns, the Fed chair uh, under Nixon, Ford, and Carter, very much favored employment growth jobs relative to inflation. So the the first three features of the great inflation, there's a lot in common today, but the next two are different. And so crucial to getting inflation up into double-digit territory, almost to 20% in the 70s, were the two supply shocks, the energy crises of 73 and 79. They were mistakenly expected to have only a temporary impact on inflation. So the Fed accommodated them. That is kept policy very loose during that time period. And we do have some supply bottlenecks in the economy today affecting semiconductors and a couple of areas, but nothing on the, the same order of magnitude. During the 70s, we had the price of WTI going from $3.50 in 1973 and increased over tenfold by the end of the decade. Energy was a big part of both the consumer basket and and certainly input into a lot of businesses. So nothing of that magnitude. And and then the final point is the great inflation took an extended period of time. There are lots of catalysts, numerous policy errors. So inflation expectations didn't become emerge quickly in the span of a couple quarters, even a few years. It took the good part of a decade. So when we're looking at today, we think the first three aspects of the great inflation, certainly you could point to them existing today, but the latter two, the big supply shocks and an extended period of policy errors in which households and businesses just didn't believe the Fed and politicians, fiscal policy makers anymore. It could be that things would keep going wrong and we'll get there. But I think it's way too early to say that we're in a similar situation. That Maybe we're in a similar situation to, say, 1968, but certainly not to 1970s when inflation got into double-digit territory.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, when you talk about policy errors, let's throw out a wild card. Modern monetary theory, you know, if believers of, of modern monetary theory gain more sway, you know, in in the administration or the Fed or both, would that constitute a policy error, possibly, that could send inflation higher?
1: Well, it's certainly a big change. And I think certainly MMT is becoming more popular among policymakers. And I think that's among both Democratic and Republican policymakers. Essentially, the Trump tax cuts three years ago where I think was an example of MMT. But what's happened in terms of people's thinking, the consensus view among economists and policymakers was that the economy typically operated near full employment. And you could certainly make the case in the 50s and 60s that that was the situation. And that implied fiscal stimulus is dangerous as it's going to crowd out the private sector, including private sector investment and spur inflation. So you have to be really careful about fiscal stimulus. But if we're looking from the perspective of 2020 or 2021, we now have 30 years in which the dog hasn't barked. We've had lots of fiscal stimulus. We've had QE. We've had zero rates for a long time period. And there hasn't been any inflation. So this view, the old consensus view, has been turned on its head. And and the growing view is that the economy typically operates well below full employment. So there's lots of room to crank up fiscal spending On a host of government programs, at least until inflationary pressures build, there's a host of problems with this. One one problem is we have no idea where the point is where inflationary pressures will build, and we won't know where it is until we're well beyond it. Inflation is accelerating, and the only way to get inflation expectations back down to 2% will be a severe policy-induced recession.
0: Okay, so if the great inflation of the 60s and 70s you think is not a perfect analogy, Tell us about an even earlier time period that you think might be a better roadmap to what's happening
1: now. Yeah, in, in the paper we mentioned that one period that we think does make a, a lot of sense to look at was the Korean War experience. It involved a big ramp up uh, in spending in 1950 and 1951. You had a, a massive output gap. In fact, the, the, the output gap during the three years, 1950 to 1952, was the biggest it's been in the post World War II experience, even including up to 2021. With that, we did get inflation driven higher through 1950, 1951. But by 1952, spending was being brought back in and inflation came back into 2%. And then at least for the next 13 years, inflation expectations was well behaved. There doesn't seem to have been any systemic damage to the economy during the Korean War. Equity markets were in fact up thirty six percent during that three year period of hostilities. So that strikes me as a better qualitative analogy rather than the great inflation because, you know, if in fact we're getting a one off in spending and so we're gonna have a big boost to growth, the up to gap's gonna become big, but then in a year or two it's all going to come back down and inflation will then normalize back towards two percent where it's been for a long time.
0: Okay. So what, what should we be looking for? you know what sort of signposts uh, uh, should we be looking for to see whether this in fact does turn out to be a transitory rise in inflation and 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 where do you think we will be in a year vis-a-vis inflation?
1: So in terms of specific signs to be thinking about, you know I think there's three that we should be keeping in mind. one is longer term inflation expectations as are measured by some derivative markets like the five year, five year inflation swap. And we've seen short term measures like the two year breakeven, they've headed towards three percent, but longer term measures like the 10 year breakeven or the five year, five year so far remained anchored closer to two percent. But if we do see this start to rise up above two and a half percent, moving towards three percent, then the market's telling us they're becoming increasingly worried. A second specific sign to look at is wages. And once inflation becomes embedded into wages, as occurred in the 1970s, then a wage price spirals highly likely. And the only way to exit such a spiral is a policy-induced recession, such as the two that we experienced under Volcker. The third specific thing that I would look for would be rents. People aren't talking much about this. But with home prices increasing at their fastest pace since 2005, this is definitely something to watch out for and has a very high weighting, both in the CPI and PCE measures of inflation. Okay. And
0: finally, let's close with, you know, a practical question for listeners, which is, if you're an equity investor, how do you play inflation? What does well? What does poorly during periods of higher inflation in the stock market?
1: So we have some analysis in the paper, and we show that equity markets view a rise in short-term inflation expectations, such as the two-year break even moving up. Typically, that's good news. The market views that as an improving cycle. And during that time period, you get value outperforming growth and, for example, banks outperforming tech. So that's when you get initially inflation, sort of what people call reflation, and that's shown by two-year break evens moving up. But you get a very different result when this gets into longer-term expectations, 10-year break-evens, or the five-year, five-year that I mentioned before. When those start to move up, equity markets typically tumble. The view then is that they're thinking, we're late cycle, inflation's getting too high, the Fed's going to have to come in and to stomp on the economic recovery. And, and then in that situation, pretty much all styles and sectors exhibit negative performance over recent decades, you know, the really only exception that's been the energy sector, but I'm not sure how robust that result is. So it's this dichotomy, short term increase in inflation. You can view that as good news because the cycle is getting better, but if that gets into longer measures, then the market starts to worry. Inflation is getting out of control. The Fed's going to end the party. And in fact, pretty much everything has negative performance.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is. It's just getting back to the, the subject of, of humility about what we can know. It is true that, you know, our, our data over the last 50 years, you know, includes this one period of a big run up in inflation and then a big reduction in inflation. And as, as you say, regarding the performance of energy stocks, Yes, they did well, but it was because, you know, the rise in oil prices was in fact one of the drivers of inflation in that episode. Doesn't mean it's going to be the case in a subsequent episode of inflation. So we do have to, uh, you know, understand that our data history is somewhat limited. So anyway, so thanks. Thanks again for joining. Me, and I promise we will find a different guest for the next episode, give you a break and listeners. If you enjoyed the, the podcast, please give us a, a good review on whatever platform you're getting the, this podcast from. And we will be back again with another episode soon. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website,
2: www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.